Well, I'm Irish. <laughs> At least partly. I think. <laughs> I have an Irish name. Ryan Thomas Kelly. But don't ask me which Irish clan my people come from. I don't know. On my mom's side, I know there's some German and some French Canadian. I know back in Montreal, our family, the Lebeaus, had a lot of Jean-Baptistes in the family. In other words, they kept using that name, and I don't know why. I don't know much of my heritage. I've never gotten into that. I've never been on Ancestry.com. I don't think much of my heritage. Whatever I am, it doesn't really influence me, at least not consciously. And I suspect I'm a pretty typical American in that regard, especially as a white Anglo. Now, if you're African-American, you would probably word your heritage differently than I just did. If you're a second or third generation immigrant into this country, then you would probably see things differently than I just expressed them. But many of us are not very concerned with our past, with an identity, with a story. My point is not that you should be. My point is not that you should get on Ancestry.com and study your family tree more, nor that you should renounce your heritage or be less into it than you are. My point is that if you're a Christian, you are already connected to something even bigger, even greater, and even older than anything you could ever discover on Ancestry.com. My point is that anyone here today can be connected with something far greater than a national or ethnic heritage. It wasn't that long ago that we were studying the book of Galatians together as a church, the New Testament letter of Galatians. And you might remember there that Paul speaks of the offspring of Abraham, the heritage of Abraham to now Gentiles. He speaks like this to Gentiles as he writes Galatians. He says that they are now sons and daughters of Abraham not because of ancestry or ethnicity, but through faith in Christ. It's Galatians 3. He says it multiple ways, multiple times. It is those who are of faith who are now sons and daughters of Abraham. And so if you're a Christian, that is your spiritual ancestry. It goes back to Father Abraham. Those are your people. This is your story. Your God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promises that God gave way back in the book of Genesis roll down to us today. So in light of that, I invite you to join the bedside of one of our oldest patriarchs, Jacob, on his deathbed with his family gathered round as he gives 
blessings to his 12 sons and two grandsons. And as he does, he looks back on what God has done and his faithfulness in the long and winding road of his life. But he also looks ahead to the future. The future for these 12 sons and the 12 tribes that will come from them in these oracles, as we'll see today in Genesis 48 and 49, we find not only Israel's history, in other words, the rest of the Old Testament, as we could put it, but we also find our hope and the hope for the coming of the Savior of the world, the King of Kings, the one we've been singing about all morning. We'll start by reading about a chapter and a half as we look to Genesis 48 and 49 this morning. It'll take me about six minutes to read uh, Genesis 48 and about 12 verses into the next chapter. Look on with me if you have a Bible. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Chapter 49, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce. It is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. We'll stop there for now. We'll work our way through this passage over five headings. And the first occupies chapter 48. In other words, chapter 48 occupies the first of these five headings. It's this, the adoption and blessing of Joseph's sons. Before Jacob gets to his 12 sons, he deals with two grandsons. Notice that this is all about the relaying of the Abrahamic covenant, that thing that stretches from Genesis 12 all the way through. Verses 3 and 4 recount what Jacob received as his father and grandfather did and what he now passes on. 
the promises of God that his people would be a multitude of people, that they would have a special land, that they would become a nation, and even nations would come from them, and then they would be blessed and be a blessing to the nations. Those promises, again, are repeated throughout Genesis and are here again, now passed down through Jacob to these grandsons in what is really an adoption ceremony. You see, after being introduced to Joseph's sons, Jacob says, verse 5, now your two sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. Jacob is making his grandsons his own sons on par with Jacob's real sons. What's the point of this? Well, we'll see another reason for it in the next heading. But here we can say that the adoption of Joseph's sons as Jacob's own means an enlargement, an enlargement of Jacob's, I'm sorry, of Joseph's inheritance. It means that the Joseph line gets double portion among the other brothers. This explains why later on, Joseph, the tribe of Joseph isn't said to receive any land when that's portioned uh, portioned out in the, the book of Joshua. No, there's no land inheritance there for, jo- for Joseph, but Ephraim and Manasseh each get large portions of land. They receive a double portion. The house of Joseph, as it's worded in the book of Joshua, they receive the double portion. But there's that surprise reversal that takes place in the actual blessing. Did you catch it? Verse 13, Joseph brings his two sons. He puts his oldest on his left hand to go to Father Jacob's right hand. And he puts the younger on his right hand going to Father Jacob's left hand. And behind that, of course, is the cultural idea that firstborn sons always received the best inheritance of the family and would normally be seen as the leader of the family in the next generation. But Grandpa Jacob does a switcheroo. The last second, he switches arms and he blesses the younger, not the older. That's not the cultural norm. But it's not atypical for the book of Genesis, is it? God favored Abel, not the older Cain. Isaac was the promised son, not Ishmael, the firstborn. Jacob received the blessing, even though he stole it. But he received it and got it and not his twin Esau who came out of the womb first. And now Ephraim is blessed as the firstborn, even though he's not the firstborn. Manasseh was. And Joseph assumes that this is a mistake. Blind dad did something goofy again, and he did this at the last minute, not knowing which son was where. But it's not a mistake. Jacob here has been apparently given divine insight 
into God's sovereign electing grace. Now, we don't have that insight. We don't know who gets saved. We don't know who and how and when God blesses. He blesses us all differently. But it reminds us here that God's grace is not according to cultural norms and worldly expectations. God's grace is sheer grace. God's grace is not he helps those who help themselves. It's him helping those who know they cannot help themselves. He saves the lowly. This is how we as Christians we're saved. This is our conversion story. This is what Paul told the, the Corinthian church when he wrote to them in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He said, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were, were powerful in the world's eyes. No, God chose what is foolish in the world to confound the wise. He, he chose what is weak in the world to confound what appears to be strength. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast or brag in his presence. God saves in such a way that he gets full credit, all the glory. It's all of grace. And so when you became a Christian, you became a Christian not because you were smarter than someone else that heard the gospel that day. Maybe even someone who heard the same gospel presentation that day. You weren't smarter. You weren't more spiritually attuned. It wasn't because your mom raised you better. It was nothing. It wasn't education. It was nothing but grace. This is how God saves now, the chapter ends with this mysterious gift. Notice this in verse 22. This comes out of nowhere. Jacob says to Joseph, I've given to you rather than to your brothers a mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is a story that apparently isn't recorded in the Bible. Not everything that can be said could be said. But apparently there was once a battle with the Amorites and Jacob's people won. And Jacob took a chunk of rock from Amorite land. And he's carried it with him all these years. He's kept it. And now he hands it off to Joseph. Not just as a memorial. You know, like your dad might have had a wooden nickel or a Susan B. Anthony or a $2 bill or something. This isn't just a memento. This is a deposit. This is a down payment on the land that God will one day give these people. So it's an act of faith for Jacob to hold this land and to pass on this little token of land to the next generation. Oh, you think of the encouragement this would be for those first hearers of the book of Genesis, those Israelites in the wilderness who were about to enter the land. Maybe they still carry this rock around with them. Jacob's dying days should be a model and an encouragement to us. In many ways, we're not Father Jacob. No, none of us is a patriarch with divine insight, 
on the futures of our kids and grandkids. So none of us should say, I know you, you're going to make it, and this one, well, good luck with him. I don't know. Now I'm ready to die. Don't bother with that kind of stuff. You're not Jacob. But what a model that Jacob is of recounting God's faithfulness of old to the next generation in view of the future. He looks back and he looks ahead on his deathbed. Does it make you not wonder what you and your family will talk about when your days are few? What will you talk about? What will you remember? What will you rehearse? What will you encourage them with in your dying days? And what will you leave behind? Susan B. Anthony and a $2 bill? Or even a large inheritance? Jacob leaves behind a spiritual inheritance. The promises of God, the God of his fathers. We could leave behind nothing better for the next generation. Well, it's then in chapter 49 that Jacob calls the rest of the sons in and he tells them, notice this, verse 1, what shall happen to them in days to come? Twelve sons are addressed. We're going to deal with those twelve sons under four more headings. And the second one will go quickly. We could call this heading the disqualification of the older sons. That's what we find in the first seven verses of chapter 49. Reuben is addressed, the firstborn, who's lost his right as the firstborn because he climbed into his father's bed and defiled it. If you don't know what that alludes to, well, it's in chapter 35, and you can read about it there, that sad occasion where he took his father's concubine. That's the other reason I alluded to as to why Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh. It's because the older sons, the, the, the real sons of Jacob, firstborn, secondborn, and thirdborn, are going to be disqualified for what they've done in the past. They're going to be replaced. There's Simon and Levi addressed together in verses 5 to 7. They are, they are brothers in violence. In anger, they killed men. This no doubt refers to their violent retribution to the men of Shechem back in Genesis 34. You can read that later if you're unfamiliar with it. But here's the point. Cursed be their anger. No blessings. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that is exactly what happens in the years to come. Reuben's people settled in Canaan, but soon disappeared from the pages of history. The same with Simeon's people, disappeared from the pages of history. As for the Levites, well, they would never possess a patch of land in Canaan, but they'd become the Levites. 
That's a pretty big deal if you know the Bible. They are the priests. All the priests of the Old Testament are made up of the tribe of Levi. They were priests. They didn't need land because the tabernacle and the temple were their land. They had the closest proximity to God. And so in these first three brothers, we see a couple of principles. One, that sin has consequences. And while there aren't generational curses in the Bible, sin does have effect often on generations to come. Sin has consequences. Just look at Reuben and Simeon and their tribes. But another lesson is that God's grace is often far better than we deserve. And just look at the Levites. They didn't get land, but they got a priesthood. They got temple work. They got the holy of holies. God's grace is better than we deserve. Even in the disqualification of the older sons. Then thirdly, we have the blessing of Judah. The blessing of Judah. Now notice, as you look down in your Bibles in chapter 49, you see that Judah and Joseph get the majority of the attention in this chapter. They each get five verses of blessings, while their brothers sometimes only get a verse per son. Now before we dig into Judah's blessing verses 8 to 12, I want you to just remember the big picture of the book of Genesis and that very first gospel promise back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 15. You don't have to memorize the language of that verse, but everyone should know its address and its importance. God promised that in the offspring of the woman, Eve, eventually there would come a seed who would crush the head of the serpent, the devil. And so one way to read the book of Genesis, a good way to read the book of Genesis, is to be looking for this one to come who will be the serpent crusher. There is good evidence to believe that Eve was even wondering whether her sons would fulfill this promise. There is some indication that Noah's father, not long after, would, would think that his son Noah could possibly be that one of Genesis 3.15. And then you move along and eventually God is promising to Abraham not only a multitude of offspring, plural, many, yes, but singular as well. In your seed, in this one to come, a son of Eve, a son of Abraham. And then in the next generation, we know that that promise runs through Isaac. And in the next generation, it runs through Jacob. And in the last one-third of the book of Genesis, we've been wondering, perhaps in the next generation, it would be who? Joseph. I mean, the spotlight is on him for one-third of the book of Genesis. You fast forward to the New Testament days and you find John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus to ask him this, are you the one or should we wait for another? They're reading the Bible the right way. 
There's one to come. There is one singular to come. There's a capital O and E, one to come. They're wondering if Jesus was that one. Looking back, they would know. There was a seed of Eve, a seed of Abraham, seed of Isaac and, and Jacob, and wondering whether at a time there was one who would be like Joseph. But then we read these lofty words about Judah. Notice, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Very Joseph-like. But it goes far beyond anything Joseph has ever experienced or known or been promised. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. The lion, the, the animal that represents royalty and power. He's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You stooped down, you crouched as a lion. Who dares rouse him? And did you see that in verse 8? We skipped that, but notice, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. It's not exactly the language of Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of the serpent, but it's similar. There's conflict, but victory. He has unparalleled preeminence, unparalleled power. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The symbol of reigning and ruling will not depart from Judah in his line until tribute comes to him. Tribute, honor, literally it's the word for praise. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. This thing's going global with Judah and his offspring. A universal rule with universal praise and with unthinkable provision. Verse 11, binding his foal his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in blood of grapes. Now, what's that mean? That's all foreign imagery for us. Kent Hughes summarizes it briefly like this. He says, there will be such an abundance of grapes that this one, this one to come will tether his donkey to a choice grapevine with no concern of his donkey helping itself to the vintage. There will be such a surplus of wine that people will not worry about using it to wash clothes. I'd heard that the NBA player Amari Stoudemire used to put wine in his hot tub to bathe in it. I mean, that's pretty extravagant, right? If not silly. But it's using that kind of imagery here for so much wine, so much abundance of harvest. You've got this vine with good grapes on it that could be wine. I don't know. Tie up the donkey with that. Well, how about this vat of wine? What shall we do with that? I don't know. Brush your teeth with it. Wash your clothes in it. Take a dip in it if you'd like. It's unthinkable abundance and joy. 
And we're wondering at this point, who is this? Who, ha- who can fill shoes this big? And, and the question just keeps looming and swelling with passages like Numbers 24, where Balaam foresees this. I see him, but not near. I behold him, but not now. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall arise out of Israel, and it will crush the head of God's enemies. Again, it's so big, and you, you wonder if, if, this, if these kind of passages are speaking of King David, who would later reign over Israel in godliness and might and wealth, or perhaps it would be his son Solomon, and then eventually we find out, no, David died, Solomon disqualifies himself, It's not either of them, but the promised royal lineage does run through both of them. And then we just keep waiting and watching and waiting and watching. And then we open to the New Testament where it begins with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. It says Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah. Jesus is a son of Judah. He is the son of Judah. And he shows up on the scene checking these boxes left and right. These Old Testament foreshadows and foretelling of the one who would come. What was Jesus' first miracle? Do you remember? The wedding at Canaan. Wine aplenty. Hmm. Oh, I know, it doesn't now look like the impoverished Jesus of the Gospels could possibly be this one of great abundance, this kingly line of Judah. But, but, but he was. It doesn't look like he reigns like this now, but he does, and he will. So Hebrews 2 talks about the fact that we don't yet see him reigning over all things, but he does, and he will put all things under his feet eventually. Eventually, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we know? Well, passages like Revelation 5, which Kennedy read for us earlier. Remember, John had a vision of heaven a scroll. There was no one to open the scroll. What's that mean? Well, the scroll represents God's plan for humanity, his plan for their redemption. No one could look into it. No one could open it. No one could enact God's plan for humanity. So John wept. But then he's told by an angel, there is one. Listen, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, spoken of in Genesis 49. He's the fulfillment. And he alone is the one who can accomplish God's plan for this world. He is a lion. Whatever you think of Jesus, if you do not have a category of him as lion-like reigning king then you don't get them. 
You've misunderstood his compassion or his interest in kids or the cross or something. Jesus is a lion. I, I can't help but think of, you know, C.S. Lewis's imagery of Aslan in The Lion, Witch, in Wardrobe. Do you, do you remember when little Lucy, the young girl, was soon to meet Aslan, the lion? And Lucy asks Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? Mrs. Beaver says, oh, no. You should be rather nervous about meeting this lion. There's none who appear before Aslan without their knees knocking. Then he isn't safe, Lucy asks again. Mr. Beaver jumps in. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. He's not safe, but he's good. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so all allegiance goes to him. Through him, a final reckoning, eternal justice will come, and from him, fullest blessings eventually will be realized for those who put themselves under him. He alone can overturn the curse and crush the head of the serpent, and he's already done so at the cross and in his resurrection. It was actually through the cross that he became the one who was worthy to enact God's plan of salvation. That's what the rest of Revelation 5 said. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So whereas the cross looked like his defeat and looked like lowliness and looked like pathetic loss, it was actually God's plan of victory where he died as a substitute, a, a lamb. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Do you see your need for a lamb who was slaughtered in your place for your sins? Do you see your need for a lion-like ruler that you can submit all claims of justice to for now and eternity? That's the story of the Bible. Here it is in miniature in this little dead death bed prophecy to Judah in chapter 49. Now fourthly, and this one just quickly, there's the pronouncements for the others. Notice verses 13 to 21 and then also verse 27. These are the others. That's what I've just called them. The others. The other brothers, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Nephtali, and Benjamin. These brothers receive quick well, not blessings so much, not full curses for all of them. Let's just call them pronouncements because they're mixed, both positive and negative. I don't want to give too much time to these here. For one reason, the passage doesn't focus on them. It focuses on Judah and Joseph. We need to give most time to them. 
But another reason for not focusing on them is it just gets a bit dizzying trying to figure out what some of these sayings and metaphors really mean and where and how they would later come to be realized in Israel's history. This is a rabbit hole as deep as you want it to go with perhaps very little um, spiritual DNA in it or uh, I don't know what... All God's word is inspired. Not all of it is equally inspiring, we might say. And so you can trace this. What happened with, with this tribe and that tribe? And, and I'll, just, I'll just run through it. You can look down in your Bibles as I summarize what's said. Zebulun, verse 13, will be wealthy with its seashore occupation. Issachar will be fruitful, uh, but then lazy and then taken into servitude. Dan will be shrewd like a serpent, but will eventually fall into idolatry in Judges 18, like that old serpent, Satan. It's there, notice this, that Jacob exclaims in prayer in the middle of all this. Verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Right after talking about Dan and that tribe's hopeless future, Jacob longs for God's full salvation to come. Here's, here's proof that we are right to read the Old Testament with anticipation, with waiting. I wait for your salvation. Gad, well, there'll be people of war, sometimes victorious, sometimes not. Asher, those people will be wealthy. Nephtali, they will be many in number. The Benjaminites will become mighty warriors. Again, these oracles play out in a variety of ways in the rest of the Old Testament. The takeaway is that God is moving his plan along through some messed up people. Through messed up people. He's blessing a people by his grace and not according to their worth. Well, we read on, look at verse 22 when we come to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So fifth here, now we have the blessing of Joseph in this last section. Remember, Joseph faced severe an undeserved opposition, worded here in verse 23 as the archers bitterly attacked him and they harassed him severely. And that was seen in his brother's behavior toward him and in Potiphar's wife's lies about him and in the cupbearer's neglect of him. 
And yet through it all, he was like a tree. A tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. That's the language of Psalm 1. But first used here of Joseph and his kind. A tree with long branches. The imagery is this. Long branches hanging over the city wall for passers-by to take and eat from its fruit. He's a blessing, in other words. He's a blessing in and through his undeserved suffering. It was because God was in it. God had plans for his suffering. God was using it, as we'll see him say next week. You brothers meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. From him comes blessings and has come blessings. Blessings, blessings, blessings. Again, through undeserved suffering. Joseph was put in various positions and prepared for crucial moments through undeserved suffering. And in that undeserved suffering, God exalted him and saved the world. The world at that time. We've said it before, we'll say it again, that this is all very Jesus-like. Jesus was rejected by his brothers and stripped of his robe and sold for silver and handed over to the Gentiles. But God was in it. It was the plan all along. Jesus was sent by God. And through a path of great undeserved suffering, he became exalted, supremely exalted. And in his exaltation and suffering, he now has blessings, 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 blessings to bestow. You think of Ephesians 1 where Paul says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has predestined us for adoption. He's lavished his love upon us all because of his grace, all according to his, for his glory. He's blessed us. In Jesus comes blessing, blessing, blessing through his undeserved suffering and exaltation to be the savior of the world. So the parallels between Joseph and Jesus are unmistakable and not coincidental, and yet you have that Judah thing getting in the way of a nice, clean typology is what we call it in a technical term. How, how, how did Joseph... And Judah relate to Jesus. We've been anticipating Joseph is the one occupying the last one-third of Genesis. Perhaps he's the one to come. And then we read Judah's prophecy. The line of the king will run through Judah. Judah of all people. You didn't see it coming, did you? How do Joseph and Judah relate to Jesus? They both do. Here's the answer. They both anticipate the Christ to come, just not in the same way. Joseph provides a pattern of the kind of Savior we would need. Humble, rejected, 
sacrificial, and suffering. But Judah provides the promise and prophecy of the line of the king that would one day come. One who rules in might. One who is awe-filling. One who is powerful and eternal. We need a Joseph-like savior and a Judah-like king. We need a lion and a lamb. And all the Old Testament foreshadows come together in the substance of Jesus Christ, in him alone. And so if we're tied into Jesus, we are tied into something so massive, so eternal, so historical, so unthreatened, unchanging, so unshakable. This is who we are now. These are our people. This is our story. This is our song. Praising our Savior all the day long. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heirs of salvation. Purchased by God, born of his spirit, lost in his love. Perfect submission. All is at rest. We, in our Savior, are happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above filled with his goodness and lost in his love. This is our story. This is our song, praising our Savior all the day long. And the story's not done. The story's been written. The story's as good as done. But the story is still unfolding. And we will see it played out in headlines of our newspapers and in the pains and sufferings and joys of our lives. It might be decades more. It might be only months. So until the Lord takes us home, or until the Lord returns to get us. We say with old Jacob, we wait for your salvation, O Lord. We wait for your full salvation, and we believe it will come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we look back with thankfulness for what you've done and who you are, what you've said in your word and what you've promised to do in days ahead, we look ahead with great joy, with confidence, we are not afraid. One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. May we bow in our hearts now before this king, this supreme king, the promised one. May we crown him with many crowns even now as we sing. We pray in his name, amen.